right, good morning. How's everyone doing? I love that video. Anybody else love it? It's so much fun. I, I just love this season of Advent that we're in. If this is your first time joining us, uh, my name is Pastor Alberto, and I serve as the lead pastor here. Uh, and I'm really, really excited to, to kick off our, our second week in this brand new sermon series as we're really unpacking this whole idea of what this Christmas season uh, is about. Now, uh, if you're wondering uh, what Advent is all about and, and why we light these candles, uh, each candle sort of represents a specific gift, a specific promise that we have in Jesus. Uh, and, and they each represent a specific theme that we're going to be uncovering. So we have the first candle, which is this candle of hope. Uh, the Bible says that Jesus is the light of the world, and he comes and shines his light upon us, us a people who were walking in darkness, so that we can have the light of God inside of our hearts and come alive and really become all that he's called us to be. And uh, one of the greatest treasures and promises that we have is that if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, we are a people of hope. Uh, That means that regardless of what's going on around us or in us, uh, our hope is not found in good circumstances or bad circumstances. It's rooted, it's anchored in a person named Jesus. Uh, this morning, we, we lit our, our second candle. Uh, shout out to Paul. Uh, he, he's a mighty candle lighter. Way to go with that, Paul. Uh, and this candle represents the candle, uh, uh, this theme of peace. And that's what we're going to be unpacking today, how Jesus comes and, and brings peace, a, a peace that surpasses understanding, a, a peace that, uh, it, it, that makes us right with God, a peace with one another. And we're going to see what this peace means and how it plays out in our day-to-day lives. Uh, so to do that, we are going to look at uh, three different places in Scripture. The first one is Isaiah chapter 9, and the second is in Matthew chapter 4. Isaiah chapter 9, Matthew chapter 4, and uh, it is our tradition here to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. So I want to invite you, wherever you find yourself this morning, uh, to stand and let's honor the reading of God's word. I'm going to read uh, Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 2. And then if you have your Bible open, uh, I want you to go to verse 6 and 7 after that. So we're going to go Isaiah chapter, verses 1 and 2, and then 6 and 7. It's all on the screen, uh, and you can read. Uh, verse 1 says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. Now let's go all the way down to verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now we're going to go to the New Testament, the first book in the New Testament, uh, the book of Matthew. We're going to look at chapter 4, verse 12 through 17. The scriptures are on the screen. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, what we just read. 
the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them has light dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. With the remaining time we have together, I have three points that's going to structure this text and uh, help unpack these verses that we just read. So if you're taking notes, point number one is the land of devastation. Point number two is peace in the devastation. And point number three is peace for the devastated. The land of devastation, peace in the devastation, and peace for the devastated. Let's pray. Father, we come in Jesus' name, and we're so thankful for this gift that we have in gathering this morning. Uh, Many of us have come from different walks of life and have come into this room experiencing life differently, yet we all come to worship the one true and living God. And Lord, I pray that as we worship you this morning, that you would meet us, that you would comfort us, that you would breathe new life into us and transform us as we look into your word. Help us to grow closer to you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Over the weekend, I saw this movie called uh, The Terminal, starring Tom Hanks. Have any of you guys ever seen it? I, I was, it was the first time I ever saw this movie, and uh, I loved it. It might be one of my top favorite movies, because that's how I roll. So uh, if you ask me what my new favorite movie is, it's going to be this one for a little bit. Uh, the premise of this movie is that Tom Hanks is playing this Eastern European man, and his name is Victor Navorsky, and he's a traveler from this fictional nation of Krakosia. Uh, as he arrives into New York City, into JFK, uh, his nation is plunged into civil war after there's this coup and uprising, and his government has completely fallen apart, so much so that the U.S. government does not recognize this new government in Krakosia, and so his passport becomes invalid. And and you know the premise of the movie. Uh, This man cannot enter the country, and he cannot leave the airport, so he begins to live in this airport for nine whole months, is how the movie goes. And he begins to make friends and develop community. He works a job, and and he's just there waiting for his country to settle and for his visa to be accepted. And so there's a scene that every day in the movie, he's going to customs and he's trying to get his passport approved. And every single day it's denied because his country is still knee deep in civil war and and they call him unacceptable. Uh, You're neither uh, welcome here, but you're not a citizen over there. So you can't go back. So you're in this weird in-between place of unacceptable. And so he becomes a refugee living in the airport. Well, nine months later, this war comes to an end. And if you remember this movie, uh, there's this amazing celebration. He looks to the TVs and the TV says, there's peace in Krakosia. There's peace in Krakosia. The, the war has ended and everybody is celebrating. Why? Because they know what this means. 
They know that Victor can finally leave the airport. He is a free man. He can, he can go into New York City and fulfill this long-awaited promise that he made to his father. He can go back home. He's no longer restricted to this area. And so everybody's celebrating. They're at the bar in the airport, and there's drinks, and there's toast, and everybody's having the time of their life. Why? Because there's peace in Krakosia. After this long season of waiting, good news has arrived. And I just paused the movie last night right before it finished. And I said, I said, Morgan, do you see this? She said, see what? The gospel. Do you see the gospel? And she's like, no, no, hit play. Stop that. And I thought to myself, God is so good. I, I have, a, I have a, an illustration, a story to open with. That in this movie, peace has arrived and they're celebrating. Why? Because that's what good news does. Whenever you receive good news, it changes things. It transforms things. People celebrate. It moves people. And that's what's happening in this movie. There's good news because he's now a free man and people are celebrating. And church, this is how Matthew kicks off his book. He is saying that good news has arrived. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This exact same moment is recorded in the book of Mark. And Mark calls this message the gospel. In Mark chapter one, verse 14 and 15, he says, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God, proclaiming the good news of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand Repent and believe in the gospel, in this good news. The gospel is not a set of instructions. Uh, The gospel is not a set of instructions informing you how to live a better life. It's not God saying, hey, here's what I want you to do, and here's what I don't want you to do, and these sins are acceptable, these sins are okay, and stay away from these sins. No, that's not the gospel. The gospel is news. It is not a set of directions. It's not advice for how to live. It is an announcement. The gospel is good news. And when news is important, and when news goes out and it is announced, it changes things. Any sort of news that's important, and any time that important news is announced, it changes things. Think about our, our current circumstances. Uh, when, when the weather changes, and if the weather is um, crazy enough, uh, and there's going to be snow or flurries or ice, we change things. We adjust our lives. We turn off maybe the pipes, and uh, we get the ice scraper ready, and we turn the car on extra early. That news informs us and then influences the way we live. Think about uh, the, the coronavirus and, 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 and the new variant and all the stuff that's going on in the world. When that news goes out, it changes things. And even in this fictional movie, when war ends in a nation and peace has arrived, it changes things. It means this man can experience a new set of freedom that was once 
restricted from him. This is what news does. And so the gospel is good news. The gospel is uh, the answer to your problems, not a set of better instructions. Uh, The gospel is not a better handbook for life. No, it is a message. It is a message, and the content of this message is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So why is Jesus good news? Why is the arrival and the announcement of his kingdom to be celebrated and lived in Well, before we unpack that, we have to understand that this good news, like all good news, usually comes on the heels of really, really bad news. And this brings us to our first point, the land of devastation. Matthew 4, 12. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. Matthew, the tax collector, is writing his perspective the way he saw the story of Jesus go down, and he mentions a character named John, and it says that he'd been arrested. Uh, We, uh, upon reading the Bible, find out that this is John the Baptist, and he was a man who was supposed to be the forerunner to Jesus. He was a prophet who was announcing to everyone that the Messiah is coming. The Messiah is coming. Prepare your hearts. He is on his way. And prepare your hearts specifically by turning from your sin, by turning away from your idolatry and turning away from all the things that you're worshiping and worship the true living God. He's on his way. Now, this message wasn't very popular and the political leaders of the day and age had John arrested and eventually killed uh, because his message stood in opposition to the rule and reign that Rome wanted to exercise over this nation. This message gave people hope and they did not like that because they didn't want another uprising to happen. So when it says that Jesus withdrew from Galilee, this does not mean that Jesus fled from a dangerous situation. Rather, Jesus is positioning himself in a very strategic setting and for ministry, and we're about to see why. Verse 13, And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them has light dawned. Does this sound familiar, church? We started off this morning by reading Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1 through 2. And remember what it says. Uh, Verse 1, there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. Now, Isaiah the prophet is looking out into his nation 700 years before Jesus was even on the scene. And when he looks into the world, he sees a country that's filled with gloom, that's filled with darkness, that's filled with death, and a people who were supposed to walk in peace, a people who were supposed to know peace, uh, a peace that came from being in right relationship with God, they did not experience because they turned their backs on God. And this people, the people of God, were supposed to worship him and live in union and relationship with them. Instead, they turned their back on God and lived for lesser things. And it says that they were in anguish. 
severe distress, severe physical pain, severe suffering. We continue reading. In the former time, he brought into contempt or he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. Uh, Why was this region humbled? Because as we mentioned earlier, the people of God have turned their backs on God. And instead of living for God, they begin worshiping the false gods, specifically the false gods of the Assyrians, in hopes that maybe they could assimilate into their culture and avoid a future of oppression and slavery. This small people group uh, were on the verge of being oppressed and enslaved by a larger empire. And so their ruler had this smart idea. He said, what if we look like them? What if we do what they do? What if we we read their textbooks, uh, worship their gods, and look like them? Maybe they won't enslave us. Maybe they won't oppress us. And so they turned their back on God. And like we said last week, whenever we turn our backs on God, we don't walk towards greater degrees of freedom. Whenever we turn our backs on God and say, hey, I'm going to do things my own way because this isn't working for me, whatever way you begin to adopt isn't going to work for you anymore. Uh, Whatever way we adopt and whatever direction we walk towards that isn't towards the direction of God doesn't actually set us free. It doesn't actually enlighten us. It doesn't actually give us greater degrees of hopes and peace. In fact, it further enslaves us to ourself. And now the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali uh, is a land of devastation. This, this land of Zebulun and Naphtali, yeah, these two words can, can seem kind of hard to pronounce and, and seem foreign because they are, is a region in northern Israel, a specific region uh, in Galilee, the way we kind of would say like, like, like the great northwest, that region in the United States. We would think to ourselves, yeah, that's, that's Oregon and, and parts of California and Washington. The same thing's happening here. Uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, it's a, it's a land, it's a region in northern Israel. Remember this because we're going to come back to it. These people who have turned their backs on God are now on the verge of experiencing exile in a foreign nation in the Assyrian land. Assyria is marching on their doorstep, and this is the first region to fall to Assyria. The first region to fall to Assyria was Naphtali and Zebulun. These regions were located in northern Israel, and they were always the first to fall to northern invaders. Anytime northern invaders ever came into Israel, this would be the area that would be the first to fall to the invaders. And they were the first to be exiled. They were the first to be oppressed. They were the first to be killed. They were the first to be enslaved by the enemy. And so when Assyria marches in, they arrive in Zebulun and Naphtali and they begin deporting Israelites by the droves and they make them slaves and exiles in the land of Assyria. And we continue reading, but in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. That in fact, there's coming a day where this region that's marked by devastation will actually be marked by peace and hope and joy. And the people who walked in darkness, me, you, everyone around us will see a great light. Those who dwell in the land of deep darkness, those who lived in the anguish, those who lived in the pain, those who lived in the suffering on them 
has light shone. In other words, this land of devastation, this region in Israel will experience deliverance. The war will end one day. There will be an announcement on TV that says, the Messiah is here, peace has arrived, light will shine, and hope and peace will break through. And it did. 700 years later from Isaiah chapter 9, the light has arrived. Hope has arrived. Peace has arrived. And this brings us to point two, peace in the devastation. Let's go back to Matthew. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, what we just read about. So that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. What was spoken by him in Isaiah chapter nine, what we just read. So we're going to read it again because Matthew put it here. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them has light dawned. Remember what we said earlier about this land, about this region. This region was always the first to fall to the enemy. This region was always the first to experience the greatest amount of suffering, the greatest amount of persecution, the greatest amount of distress and anguish by the foreign invader. They were the first to be deported from their homes. They were the first to be exiled in foreign nations. The people living in this region, in this part of Israel, uh, they knew and lived in the greatest amount of pain. They had the deepest history of pain. The people living in this land had the deepest history of loss. The people in this land had the deepest history of suffering and anguish. And this is where Jesus begins his ministry. The Prince of Peace has arrived. And he comes as peace. And he is bringing peace. And where does he start? Who does he come to? The afflicted. The suffering. The hopeless. The poor and powerless. The broken. The devastated. Do you see what's happening here? The God of the universe enters into his creation and begins to unfold this good news. And where does he start? In the place of deepest suffering and deepest brokenness. And what does that say about our God? That he's close to the hurting. And that he cares about the hopeless. And he has a heart for the exiled. And the addicted. And the anguished. He says he's bringing peace. The prince of peace is here. But listen, church, the peace he brings is different. The, the peace he brings is, uh, is, is so different and, and so amazing because when we think about peace or we hear our culture talk about peace, it's often described as harmony. 
like creating a sense of unity and, and, and putting divisive issues aside so that we can eliminate the tension for the sake of creating peace. Whatever that means. And if there's anything we've learned, is that putting divisive issues aside for the sake of creating peace by removing tension doesn't create peace. Why? Because broken people, harmonizing with broken people, does not create unbroken situations, unbroken circumstances, unbroken tensions. Broken people, harmonizing with broken people, does not create long-lasting peace. Eventually, something gets broken. Another idea for peace that's popular is tranquility. The absence of disturbance. The absence of war. A stress-free state of being. And what we see here is that, that peace is always the byproduct of something. Uh, that, that in many cases, peace is the byproduct of trying to create harmony. Hey, let's harmonize so we can remove the hostility so that we can be in good standing with one another. Or maybe peace is the byproduct of removing something that's not peaceful in your life that is robbing you of peace. Maybe peace is the byproduct of filling yourself with something that will bring calm and make you feel peaceful. And, and all those things are true, and we've all experienced it, and, and we know those things to be momentary. But the vision of peace that the Scriptures offers is a peace that's a byproduct of being in a right relationship with God. The vision of peace that the Scriptures give us is a peace that is freely given to you. In fact, it says it runs like a river that is on the other side of being in a right relationship with God. This is the peace that surpasses understanding that Paul talks about because he's experiencing it and he doesn't get why it's happening. I've been thrown in jail and left for dead. I've been shipwrecked and hungry and abandoned. And yet I have peace. It surpasses my understanding. It surpasses my knowledge of earthly circumstances. Why? Because this peace is not dictated by what's happening out there, what's happening in here, by the removal of a bad vibe or unfollowing certain Instagram accounts that are toxic. No, this peace is on the other side of a right relationship with God that is completely independent of all that's happening out there or in here. But it's, it's, it's so much better than that, church. I'm about to get excited. So if you're not listening, now's the time to lean in. This biblical idea of peace, the, the Hebrew word is shalom in the Old Testament and Irene in the New Testament, a Greek word. And the idea of shalom, we, we, we've heard this word, it, 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 it's still used as a greeting, you know, peace be with you, shalom, is the idea of being sound, being safe, being uninjured, and hear me, being whole and complete, Shalom speaks to the universal flourishing where everybody and everything is thriving and living in perfect harmony, one another, and flourishing. Shalom is the idea that that we are so whole, so fulfilled, so complete. There's nothing missing in our life that, that we experience the full enjoyment of all that God has promised. 
Shalom is the idea that if, if, if we're broken into a, a thousand pieces and, and we are in the universe is that every single one of those pieces are being brought together, being made whole and connected by God himself so that we can be complete and fulfilled in him. A, a type of connection and wholeness where nothing disrupts that connection. A, a, a type of fulfillment where there's no space left for anything else except God himself and we're filled to the brim with his presence. Uh, the type of connection and unity and wholeness that we're partnering with him to create harmony in the, and flourishing in this world. We are complete in him. So complete and so whole that we are flourishing and thriving and experiencing the enjoyment of all that he's made available for us. I, I believe we, we've, we, we taste this sometimes in moments. I don't know how it works for you, but sometimes I, I find myself just sitting on an early morning with a good cup of coffee and my phone is off, locked away. No one can reach me. No one can talk to me. There's nothing on the to-do list. Everything has gotten done. And it's this like brief moment of like, I like this. I'm content. If I could have this feeling as my normal feeling forever, I'd be good. This is great. And I think God gives us these like momentary tastes. Of, of what shalom could be like, but it's very momentary because I, I then enter back into the reality that this is a broken world and this is a broken body and sin still lingers and now peace, which felt so tangible, now becomes so elusive. It's slipping through our hands. The idea is that God is putting it all back together the way it should be taking the broken pieces and putting it back together, fusing it, mending it with his power and presence and then filling us with his power and presence, taking the torn fabric in our society, taking the tears in our marriage, taking the tears in our hearts and sewing it back together, making it whole, making it complete. In shalom, nothing is missing. In shalom, nothing is broken. And the absence of peace in our lives, hear me, church, is often due to the fact that something is missing. Something is broken. Every single person in this room, myself included, we don't feel whole. We don't feel complete. We feel like something is missing. Something is incomplete. Something has been taken away from me. And we don't feel peace. And what's missing? What's making us feel incomplete? The scriptures would reveal that there's a God-sized hole in our heart that has been placed there by sin. And this hole in our heart is rarely filled with good things that sustain the type of peace that God wants to pour out into our lives. And instead, this hole in our heart, instead of filling it and reconciling it with God's peace and presence and power, we begin to fill it with other things that we desperately want to calm our raging hearts. And we say, I know what will calm this heart. A relationship, 
feelings of intimacy, security. If someone would love me and make me feel known, this this raging desire to be known would be calmed. Money and power. My heart is raging for security. And the stormy waters of my heart can only be calmed by more power and control and structure and finances. That if only I had more money, I could finally secure for myself the life that I think will make me happy without ever consulting God about it. False religion and materialism and all sorts of powers and practices that we think will help us live better and calm our raging hearts only leave us still feeling incomplete, broken, and further make us realize that there's something missing. And these things, they don't move us towards peace. Hear me, church. They are barriers. In fact, Isaiah would even describe it as blockage that keep the river of peace from flowing in your heart. That these things that we're feasting on and trying to find peace in and and trying to consume to make us feel better, the million different distractions and coping mechanisms, the different practices and relationships, uh, all of the distractions that we bring into our heart that will temporarily numb us and make us feel not distressed and not devastated are actually creating this blockage in our heart that is keeping the peace of God from flowing like a river. It creates this dam that restricts his presence. But remember, peace has arrived. The prince of peace has arrived. And and remember, who does he he move toward first? The people of Zebulun and Naphtali, the devastated, the anguished, the broken, the hurting. He moves towards the powerless. He moves towards the broken and those who are suffering and have longed for peace, have been looking for peace. And he brings peace for the devastated. The good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus is a peacemaker. The good news of the kingdom of God is that Jesus is a peacemaker. Now hear me. The idea of a peacemaker uh, is not sort of the same ideas that we have now, like maybe a diplomat who goes and makes peace and then there's a contractual agreement and we're good. No, in, in, in this first century day and age, the peacemaker was an ambassador, someone who ended wars, but it didn't stop there. The peacemaker would bring physical safety and health to the people. The peacemaker would not just seek the nation's political good. He would seek the people's well-being and he would bring justice where there would be all sorts of injustices. And when it says that Jesus is the prince of peace, the reason he is the prince of peace is because he is both a prophet and a physician. To be a peacemaker meant that you were both. You were a prophet announcing the kingdom of God, seeking justice and calling the people to repent. But you wouldn't stop there. You would, it would be holistic. You would go after their lives and you would make sure that they were whole and thriving and that the peace that has been made available, they were experiencing for themselves. That it wasn't just, hey, peace has arrived and now change the channel. No, peace has come to you. Have you received it? Are you flourishing? Are you living? Jesus is the prince of peace. He is both prophet and physician. Jesus preached the good news of peace, healing, uh, 
and doing good as Acts chapter 6 says. And this idea was so prevalent that Jeremiah chapter 6 and chapter 8 would rebuke false prophets. Uh, Jeremiah 6 would say that, 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 that the false prophets would say, peace, peace, where there is no peace. Because why? They have neither healed the people's wounds nor ended their greediness and injustice. Jeremiah is rebuking false prophets. And the reason they're false prophets is because he says, you've neither healed them. You haven't made their lives whole. There's still injustices all over the place and greed still rages in their heart. Jesus is not a false prophet. His ministry is is marked by him arriving and saying, uh, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, His gospel of peace is the guide to our feet, is what Luke would say. And he comes not only announcing peace, but upon announcing his peace, he would go out and heal the broken, lay hands on the sick, see blind eyes open, the lame walk. He would lay his hands and reverse the effects that sin has on us, showing us that he's not just any other prophet. He's the prince of peace. He's a good physician. He announces good news that makes us whole and then gets it into our heart by demonstrating it with his actions. And how does this happen? How is this possible? Jesus' death on the cross made peace. His death on the cross made peace. When Jesus died on the cross, he ended the power of hostility, the power that that brokenness has, the, the main characteristic in the fallen world. His death on the cross made peace. Peace between men, peace between peace within and peace with God. Peace between us, one another, peace within, and peace with God. There's three verses that I'm going to put in your hands that I want you to write down and meditate on this week. Peace between men, peace between men and women. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13 through 17. I want you to reflect on these verses as we lean into Advent and, and focus on this theme of peace this week. Peace with one another. But now in Christ, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. When we were distanced and far from him because of sin, he brought us back into relationship because his blood has covered and paid the price of our sins. That is death. For he himself is our peace who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who are near. Jesus has come to us, a people robbed of peace, craving peace, desiring to be made whole and complete. His death on the cross makes that possible. And now we can experience peace with one another. Second, peace within. Write this down. Isaiah chapter 53, verse five. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. 
with his wounds, we are healed. The Prince of Peace, the great prophet and physician heals us. How? By being crushed on the cross. Heals our wounds. How? By letting himself be wounded on Calvary. So that we who have been afflicted, self-afflicted, wounded and hurt can be made whole because he was broken for us on the cross. Lastly, peace with God. Romans 5, 1 through 2. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, since we've been made right with God because of our faith in him, uh, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, the good news of the kingdom of God, hear me, church, is that you can have a relationship with God because Jesus has made it possible for you to have peace with him. And this barrier of sin that created hostility and brought upon the wrath of God towards us has been poured out on Jesus so that we can experience his pleasure and his presence all the days of our life. And we can have this connection with him that is no longer disrupted or disconnected by sin. Peace with one another, peace within, and peace with God. The good news of the kingdom of God is that peace is possible. The arrival of God's kingdom brings this peace. Last question as we come to a close. Well, how do we receive this peace? Is God done talking about peace? How do we receive it? What do we do with it? There's several ways to to receive God's peace, but the one I want to focus on as we come to an end is by practicing repentance. The peace that Jesus makes available through us is available through repentance. Why do I say this? Because remember Matthew chapter four, how we started. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. Those dwelling in the region and shadow of death on them has light dawned. And after Jesus stands in fulfillment of this prophecy, 700 years later, this is his message. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, change the way that you think, change the way that you believe, change the way uh, your expectations that you had on the Messiah. It's not the conquering warrior riding in on a stallion. It's not this great king-like figure like Saul. It's an ordinary man who was born of a baby, who lived in faithfulness and obedience to his father, grew up and fulfilled this prophecy, and now stands and says, here is the arrival and the fulfillment of God's kingdom, the person of Christ. Look to this, draw near to this, come near to me. And the gift of repentance brings peace. Now, we believe here that repentance is a gift. I don't care what you grew up hearing uh, in the quad or with brother so-and-so preaching in the square saying, repent or you're going to hell. Uh, No, we believe that repentance is like this joyful experience that we can have with God. That, that, that repentance is not a word where we attach shame to it. Uh, that repentance isn't a word where we attach displeasure to and avoid all completely. Rather, repentance is a gift. And the reason why is because when we turn to God, he receives us. But think about that, church. That when you turn your life to God, 
when you uh, fixate your mind and your attention on him and draw near to him, the scripture says he receives you. The scripture says that he welcomes you. He hugs you. He embraces you. It doesn't say that, that he shames you. It doesn't say, get out of my presence and get out of my face. No, he welcomes us with love. And we believe turning to Jesus in repentance is a gift because the more we repent, the more we get to turn our lives to a God who receives us and experiences power and presence. And, and peace is the fruit of being in right relationship with God. Peace is the fruit, the byproduct of being in a right relationship with God. And when we're not in a right relationship with God, we don't experience peace. And it's not God saying, hey, you've turned your back on me and you're indulging in all sorts of things I told you not to. Boom, let me uh, strike you with an unpeaceful life. Rather, that's just the consequence. That's the byproduct of not living with God and for God. He's not saying, hey, I'm going to judge you with a great amount of, of distress and anguish. Not in the new covenant. Rather, it's the byproduct of us separating ourselves from the source of life. And whenever you separate yourself from the source of life, you wither. You dry up. And when we turn to God in repentance, we draw near to the source of life, the bread of life, and we feast on him and he receives us and he welcomes us. And and as we confess our sin to him, here is what happens. He, He receives that and then he begins to make us whole. He begins to, uh, 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 this ongoing work of making us complete. That when we turn to God in repentance and we say, God, this is what's breaking me. This is what I'm indulging in that's making me feel incomplete and whole. Can you take this? He receives us. And in his presence, there's fullness of joy because he doesn't leave us or abandon us. He begins to make us whole and complete. He begins to restore us. And fulfill us that we may experience shalom. When we turn to him and confess our sin, we can experience freedom because sin will create a blockage that will prevent peace from flowing like a river in our lives. And repentance removes the blockage. The very end of Isaiah, in chapter 66, he begins to describe this river. And he says, there's a river coming that will flow uh, like, like, like milk, that, that will nourish and give life. And, this, and he calls this a river of peace that will flow when the blockage of sin is removed. And he begins to say, if you would repent of your sin, that blockage would be removed. And this river of peace and life and flourishing will flow through your heart. Turning to God confessing our sin, bringing it to his throne and letting him embrace us and receive us and make us whole. It's one of the ways, I believe one of the primary ways we can experience peace in our lives. So as we come to a close, I want to invite the worship, worship team back up and as we prepare our hearts for communion, I want you to think about two questions. How is your peace this morning? A 
A season that's marked by peace can sometimes feel so unpeaceful. And uh, it seems like I'm just dreading the holidays because it's just such a hassle to get the kids from here to here and the rhythms and schedules get all messed up and, and there's no peace in the home. And so peace becomes placed and dependent on, 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 on how our family can perform and what they can do for us instead of the season reminding us that peace is given by Jesus Christ. Maybe you're just ready to leave here or maybe you're not even here. Because all you can think about is I got finals coming up and I need to pass these classes because if I don't pass these classes, I can't graduate and, and move on. And now all of a sudden, um, school and the busyness of ending a semester begins to, to rob your peace. Because we've allowed that thing to be our source of peace. And it's not a good peacemaker. Maybe your peace is just placed in uh, passively just saying, if I can just get through this week and one more week of work and then Christmas break starts and everything will be good. And, and, and instead of being proactive about feasting on the person of peace himself, it's just kind of just wandering and waiting through the normal week to week, just hoping it'll be a good week. Instead of coming to Jesus and anchoring our hearts in who he is and what he's done for us and saying, no, my, my, my peace is in the Lord. And when I feel robbed of peace, I will draw near to him. The prince of peace has drawn near to you. Have you received him? Have you allowed him to rule and reign in every area of your life? Let's think about this as we close in prayer.